Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Goddess Project podcast. My name is Dr. Carla Ionescu, and this week we are going to talk about the Sphinx. Um, and we're going to look at a lot of the traditions, the two traditions of the Sphinx, so the Egyptian and the Greek traditions, focusing a bit more on the Greek tradition, although I will mention the Egyptian uh, stories. But one of the things that I want, because we're continuing our monster stories, uh, so we had Medusa last week and the Sphinx this week, and next week we're going to do Enpusa and Lamia. So because we're continuing our monster theme, I want to look at the way that the Sphinx is portrayed, the horrific and monstrous aspects of her knowledge and power, and the way that she's remembered and the way that she's depicted, actually, literally, artistically depicted. So um, if you're new to the Goddess Project podcast, thank you for joining and welcome. And if you've been here for a while, thank you for coming back and joining me. Um, any updates? So we are halfway through, actually. I was just thinking of the updates that we might have for the podcast. We are halfway through the season. So each season has 20 episodes. This is episode 10. And um, I'm very excited to have brought you hopefully interesting podcasts that you've enjoyed and to continue doing that um, in the, you know, in the coming episodes. And of course, I'm already making plans for season two. Very exciting. So um, if you're, if you're new or coming back, that's sort of the update of our halfway mark. Yay. Um, I should also let you know that I'm leaving for my USA tour at the beginning of July. So I'm going to be riding my motorcycle through the U.S. to visit friends and to see some sacred indigenous sites and to do to visit caves. You all know how obsessed I am with caves and I'm working on a book on caves and uh, I'm going to be doing it solo on my motorcycle. Well, I mean, there's friends and family in the States. I'm also going to visit botanical gardens. I don't know if you're big um, into gardening, but I am in the process of building the Artemis Research Center. So uh, right now we're building the foundation, which is, uh, you know, creating, of course, the website, creating a following, uh, creating sort of a, a framework for the center. And I will be traveling both the summer and in the fall to look for a literal piece of property where I can build a literal or rebuild. I would like to buy something old and rebuild it. That would be wonderful. Um, and where was I going with this center thing? So I'm in the process of building the research center. It will take a while to build, but this will be a place where we can have research, retreats, discussions about the goddess, tours of the goddess, all these kinds of things. And so, oh, that's now I come back to my point. So this is why I'm going uh, in part to the States to look around and see if the Artemis Center will be in the States or if it will end up somewhere in Europe like Crete, which is my favorite place on earth. So we shall see. Uh, so I'll be leaving in a few weeks and uh, the podcast will go on. I will be filming the podcast while on the road and uh, also, of course, filming some of my adventures, but especially the caves. The caves will be very, very exciting. So if you uh, would like to follow along, of course, stay here and also follow me on Instagram at Artemis Expert and TikTok as well at Artemis Expert. Um, everywhere, <laughs> Artemis expert, um, and uh, and let's you know keep me company. Uh, sometimes when you travel by yourself, it's really exciting. I really love it, but I think having people with you, uh, even virtually, helps a lot, <laughs> a lot. Yeah. So uh, without further ado, let's get to the things. I'm for things for those of you who are um, listening to me. I'm just going to pull up my slides. For those of you who are watching, give me a second. Um, and here we go. The Sphinx, the original Riddler. So if you're a, a big Batman fan, uh, a DC or a Marvel fan like me, you'll get the Riddler reference right away. Even Actually, even if you're not, you know anything about Jim Carrey playing my favorite Riddler. Um, so, so extra. Um, 
I thought that this was a great title for the Sphinx because she really is the original Riddler, um, you know, in, in Batman. And I'm referring to, I think it was called Batman Returns, but uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, where uh, Jim Carrey plays the Riddler. If you didn't answer the Riddler correctly, you would also die. And so I, the more I thought of it, the more I thought, I wonder if the Riddler is somewhat inspired by the mythology around the Sphinx and, and her riddles and the fact that if you did fail her riddles, you died. Uh, but whether or not that's the case, uh, the Sphinx is the original Riddler and predates Batman's nemesis by, you know, several thousand years. So who is the Sphinx? So the Sphinx is uh, was a female monster, or I'll call her an entity, with the body of a lion, the head and breasts of a woman, eagle's wings, and according to some, a serpent's tail. She is very, very popular in ancient art, and we'll talk a little bit about Renaissance art as well. She becomes extremely um, interesting as a grotesque figure of art. In the ancient traditions, her face is, how do I say this? It's pleasingly standard. And so her face is not monstrous, which is really interesting. And that kind of connects us back to Medusa, actually, and the fact that Medusa's face slowly over time moves from the Gorgon features to the more standard Greek beauty features. And the Sphinx is similar. You know, her body is animalistic, but her face remains somewhat pleasing and and standardly Greek. So um, she was often depicted actually on the stele of tombs of men who died in their youth. And so I'm going to read to you a couple of interpretations of different authors uh, who talk about where she came from, who her parents were, um, and uh, perhaps what was her purpose. So Hesiod, of course, in his Theogony says that the Sphinx is a monstrous being of Greek mythology, okay? And it is said to have been a daughter of Orthus and Chimera, born in the country of Arimi. Uh, Apollodorus says that her parents were Typhon and Echidna, and we talked about Echidna in a previous podcast on snake mothers. Some call her the natural daughter of Laius, Pausanias especially. Uh, respecting her stay in Thebes, so she, we find her at Thebes and her connection to the fate of the house of Laius. That's Pausanias. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Pausanias and what he says about her place um, at Delphi and her learning at Delphi. Laius, okay, who is part of the house of Thebes, uh, sorry, who's the ruler of, of Thebes, himself taught her and the mysterious oracle, sorry, which Cadmus received at Elphi, as well as she is said to have learned the riddles from the muses. In some other authors, for example, like Apollodorus, he says that she is said to have come from the most distant part of Ethiopia. So she has North African roots, and of course, Egyptian roots. According to others, she was sent by Ares, who wanted to take revenge because Cadmus had slain his son, the dragon. Okay. And so this has another connection. The dragon and the serpent of Delphi have another connection, which we're going to look at in a little more detail. And Sam and some lastly say that she was one of the women who together with the daughters of Cadmus were thrown into madness and was metamorphosed, metamorphosed yeah, into the monstrous figure of the Sphinx. Okay. So there is very little or a multitude of different interpretations because there's very little written or known about this entity before or pre-Greek uh, in the pre-Greek era. However, that being said, there is a great deal of academic support for the idea that she was an ancient or pre-Greek um, figure of female knowledge and female power and frightening power and female power and that she was turned into this monstrous being eventually, of course, conquered by uh, Oedipus over time and for the Greeks to feel like they had conquered the old ways. So we're going to look at a little bit of the difference between Egypt and Greece. So just going over my notes, because I want to make sure there's a couple of parts that I would like to read to you that are really fascinating. So there's a couple of differences between uh, the Egyptian figure and the Greek figure. And I have two images here. And if you are not watching uh, this video, then uh, I hope that you are 
somewhat familiar with the Egyptian massive uh, Sphinx that uh, stands surrounded by pyramids. Uh, you can see that image is sort of the, the paws of a lion or up front, and it's actually an entire lioness body or lion's body with a human face. Um, in this case, the face seems to be male. However, um, Egyptian sphinxes were often called androsphinxes or androsphinxes, which is an un, you know, androgynous, an androgynous figure or a figure of androgynous. Uh, features. And if you take a look at the Greek Sphinx, the Greek Sphinx is very um, clearly a woman. It has a female face and of course the, the breasts in the, in the front as well as uh, she has wings and perhaps a serpent's tail, which of course the Egyptian Sphinx does not have. Now the Egyptian Sphinx was often thought as a benevolent being uh, very powerful and fierce, but a benevolent being nonetheless. Well, the Greek Sphinx is always depicted as a devouring woman, as a violent, monstrous being. The irony in that, of course, is that they're both gatekeepers or represented as gatekeepers, and they both are protective and guardians of the gates. So very interesting depiction between the two. And it is believed, of course, that the Egyptians' ideology of Sphinxes came first. And that this um, tradition uh, flowed up or flowed over into um, Greek ideology. Yeah? So the figure was originally Egyptian or Ethiopian, even in Greek mythology. But after her incorporation within the Grecian story, her figure was variously modified, right? Okay. So moving on to the difference between these two traditions, I want to point out to the fact that there's not only just the male versus female tradition, but also the birds. So the idea of bird wings is the difference and also the size. While sphinxes in the Greek traditions were fairly small in size, that is their depictions is not as massive at all as um, those in Egypt, they were more numerous. And so they, like I said, they were on funeral stele. They were, uh, I am, we're going to talk about the one that was up at uh, Delphi. They were everywhere. Yeah. And so while there is um, sort of an, a shared origin, the Greek Sphinx is changed drastically by the Greeks themselves and by later traditions. All right, she who devours. Let's move on to her story of devouring. So I wanna to read to you just a short piece um, in the description of the Greek Sphinx, uh, particularly about, where am I? I'm finding the story. Yes, here you are, Statius. So Statius, in his work called the Thebaid, okay, he writes this about the Sphinx. At a distance from the city of Thebes, two hills bear close upon each other with a grudging gulf between them. So it's in a valley of two mountains. The shadow of a mountain above and leafy ridges of curving woodland shut them in. Okay, there's a forest on either side. Through the middle of the rocks threads a rough and narrow track below which lies a plain and a broad expanse of sloping fields. Over against it, a threatening cliff rises high, the home of the winged monster, the Sphinx of Oedipus. He calls her the Sphinx of Oedipus. Oh, I can't even get started there. Here, aforetime she stood, fierce uplifting her pallid cheeks, her eyes tainted with corruption, and her plumes, her breasts, all clotted with hideous gore. Grasping human remains and clutching to her breast half-eaten bones, she scans the plains with awful gaze, with an awful gaze. Should any stranger dare to join in the strife of riddling words, or any traveler confront her and parley with her terrible tongue. Then, without more ado, 
sharpening forthwith the unsheathed talons of her livid hands and her teeth bared for wounding, she rose with dreadful beating of wings around the faces of the strangers. Nor did any guess her riddle till caught by a hero that proved her match with failing wings. Ah, horror, horror. From the bloody cliff, she dashed her insatiate paunch in despair upon the rocks beneath. The wood gives reminder of the dread story. The cattle abhor the neighboring pastures, and the flock, though greedy, will not touch the fateful herbage to the grass around. No dryad choirs take delight in the shade. It ill beseems the sacred rites of the fawny satyrs. Even birds obscene fly far from the abomination of the grove. I mean, what do you say to that? <laughs> this is the way that she is described. This is in first century B, uh, B, uh, sorry, CE. So it's a Roman epic. Um, uh, Statius interprets and inherits the history from the Greeks, of course, and who in turn had bended the history from the Egyptians. But I mean, the fact that, first of all, my favorite part, is, other than her talons, her livid tannels, talons and her livid hands, my favorite part is her gaze, right? So there, again, there's something in the gaze of intelligent women that is frightening, women that see right through you. Uh, so I wanted to share that with you because it is so gruesome. It is probably the most, there's a few other depictions that I have. Uh, but they're sort of repetitive. But this is probably the most gruesome depiction. And when I read it, I thought, oh, yes, no, we definitely have to share it. So what is this thing about Oedipus? You know, Oedipus and the great Riddler. So I don't know if many of you know this, uh, but Oedipus is the one that um, defies or defeats conquers, I'm thinking of all these words, um, the Sphinx. So in many ways, actually, Oedipus is very much the Perseus of his time. Okay. And so, um, and I'm going to read to you the story of Oedipus and how he ends up defeating this fantastical, brilliant, violent um, female embodiment within this creature. And this is by Pseudopolydorus. Uh, so while he, Creon, so Creon was king of Thebes, quite a scourge held Thebes in suppression, for, for Hera had sent upon them the Sphinx, whose parents were Echidna and Typhon. So again, notice that the blame here is on another woman. So Hera, you know, the jealous wife of Zeus, sends this abomination to Thebes, okay? The Sphinx had a woman's face, the breasts, feet, and tail of a lion, and bird wings. Okay. She had learned a riddle from the muses and now sat on Mount, on Mount Fishim, where she kept challenging the Thebans with it. The riddle, the riddle was this, and here I have the first riddle. What is it that has one voice and is four-footed and two-footed and three-footed? I'm going to give you a minute to think about that. And think about whether or not you know what the answer to this is. So I'm going to say it again. The riddle was this. What is it that has one voice and is four-footed and two-footed and three-footed? So this is the riddle that all the Thebans had got wrong. An oracle existed for the Thebans to the effect that they would be free of the Sphinx when they guessed her riddle. So they often convened to search for the meaning, but whenever they came up with the wrong answer, she would seize one of them and eat him up. Notice it's a hymn. <laughs> when many had died, including the most, and including recently Creon's own son, Haemon, Creon announced publicly that he would give both the kingdom and the widow of Laius to the man who solved the riddle. Now Oedipus, who was traveling, heard and solved it stating that the answer to the Sphinx question was men. He said, as a baby man crawls on all fours, as an adult, he is two-footed, and as he grows old, he gains a third foot in the form of a cane. When the Sphinx heard this answer, she threw herself from the Acropolis and killed herself. 
So she was so devastated by a man who had outwitted her that she threw herself from her perch, in this case, the Acropolis or the hill or the cliff, whatever you want to call it, and killed herself. Now, there are some other stories that say that there was a second riddle that she continued to challenge Oedipus with. And the second riddle is this. There are two sisters. One gives birth to the other, and she, in turn, gives birth to the first. Who are the two sisters? So I'm going to say that again and see if you are a riddle solver like Oedipus. There are two sisters. One gives birth to the other, and she, in turn, gives birth to the first. Who are the two sisters? So the interesting aspect of the story, well, there's so many layers of interesting aspects of the story. The first is that, again, once again, man outwitted woman, or the modern or the Greeks of Oedipus' time outwitted the ancient pre-cultures of the Greeks that existed there. And the other that's really fascinating is that the Sphinx was so devastated by being outwitted that she threw her, she killed, that she took her own life. And there are some stories in which Oedipus kills her, uh, but the most popular story is that she took her own life, that she just could not um, survive having been bested. So the answer to the second riddle, there are two sisters, one gives birth to the other, and she in turn gives birth to the first, is day and night. And so day gives birth to night, night gives birth to day. So if you got it, congratulations. If you got both riddles, amazing. Okay. Um, but those are the, um, the answers of the riddle that Oedipus, of course, and, um, knew and, uh, of course, ended up in the demise um, of the Sphinx. The interesting thing about, um, and there's some stories where that, that there's some versions where they talk about how she devoured herself. Either way. Um, Oedipus is recognized as this liminal or threshold figure, helping the transition between the old religious practices, which were female-centered, uh, represented by the death of the Sphinx, and the rise of the new Olympian gods. But what's really fascinating about Oedipus is, of course, as wise and as young as he was, he could not interpret the tragedy of his own fate. So some of you know the story of Oedipus, of course, and in short, um, Oedipus when Oedipus is born, there is this prophecy that he will end up killing his father and uh, his father sends him away. Well, tries to kill him. And then his mother uh, sneaks him out. Anyway, he's raised away from uh, the kingdom and he hears about this cruel king, um, which is his father, but he doesn't know. Um, and he goes off to travel and to, um, save the kingdom from this cruel king depends on which version of the story sorry i'm telling it to you really fast um and he does he ends up uh depend again depends on which story you hear there's a there's a great version of the story of course when oedipus is riding into the kingdom and he sees or he gets into a fight with the king on the road not knowing he's the king uh, and kills him and then when he arrives in the kingdom he realizes what's happened and so he marries uh the queen and they end up having children, et cetera. Anyways, it's not till many years later that Oedipus realizes that. So, so the prophet that was there as it, at his birth shows up and says, oh, I remember who you are. You're Oedipus. You're the son of the king that you just killed, that you had killed. And your wife is actually your mother. And uh, Oedipus, of course, is devastated. His mother, of course, is devastated. She had not recognized him. They already had children together. And his mother throws herself off uh, the castle wall and Oedipus uh, takes out his eyes and goes into the forest and disappears. Um, so it's a tragedy. And, uh, you know, Freud has made a great career and psychologists have made a great career out of this, the concept of the Oedipus complex, which is that young men want to marry their mothers uh, and kill their fathers. And so what's really fascinating is that is this character, which is a tragic figure and has his own uh, future problems, for example, to consider that uh, supposedly outwits and slays uh, the Sphinx. So it's a really interesting, it's a multi-layered 
story. Let's talk a little bit about the Sphinx um, at Delphi, because I think that that's another layer that's fascinating. So I have here um, a picture of the Sphinx at Delphi on what it would have looked like um, because it was tall and it was up on um, on a column, an iconic column, they call it. Um, and Pausanias describes this to us um, in detail, actually. This was called the Sphinx of the Nascent uh, that stood on a column, uh, which was an iconic uh, type of art, like I said. The statue of this mythological creature, according to Pausanias, stood on this towering column and may have, been, which may have been the oldest ionic, sorry, not iconic, ionic construction project at the site of the Oracle of Delphi. Her statue had been set up close uh, to the Hallows, which is the most sacred spot at Delphi, where Apollo had presumably killed the Python. So think about this: the Sphinx statue stands on top of the place where Apollo killed the Python, that represented female knowledge pre-Greek arrival. Right? Like mind blowing. Okay. Um, just I, I don't even know how to, uh, sort of literally overlapping traditions. Uh, this face had the face of a woman bearing an enigmatic smile. So she has a knowing smile. She had the uh, bird wings of a prey in the body of a lioness and was carved from a large piece of Nashian marble. Uh, and the construction was, according to Pausanias, uh, very detailed. In fact, so detailed that there are details that depict the hair, chest, and wings that are noticeable even from the far distance below. Um, the monument that was made, of course, of an entirely of marble reached 12.45 meters high, and it was created to awe the visitors. Okay? And, and it was also a way for the, uh, a typical example of Nashian sculpture in its peak period. My favorite part, though, was on the base of this massive and impressive column with the Sphinx standing on top of it was an inscription. And the inscription said, Delphi accorded the Nashians the right of, Prom of Promantia as before, at the time of Archon, Theolotius, Iphigenes, and Bulelis. This was the inscription. But really what it said <laughs> was that the Nashians had the right to acquire the oracles first. So because they had built the statue, it actually, actually reminds me really a lot of um, the tradition of giving statues as um, offers of friendship and unity, but also a little bit of favor. And it actually reminds me of the French, you know, giving the Statue of Liberty uh, to New York, to America. Um, and so there's this old tradition that you build something beautiful and you, and you place it there as a symbol of your greatness and your connection to the space. And in this case, the Nashians, of course, had the right to acquire oracle for, oracles first. Pausinius goes a little bit further and he says this really interesting thing. He says, there is another version of the story which makes the Sphinx the natural daughter of Laius. We've talked about that for a second. Who, because he was fond of her, told her the oracle delivered to Cadmus from Delphi. Now Laius had sons by concubines and the oracle delivered from Delphi applied only to Epicaste and her sons. So when any of her brothers came in order to claim the throne from the Sphinx, she resorted to trickery and dealing with them, saying that, they, saying that if they were the sons of Laius, they should know the oracle that came to Cadmus. When they could not answer, she would punish them with death on the grounds that they had no valid claim to the kingdom or to the relationship with their father. Now, you might ask yourself, what is this oracle that was told to, Cad to Cadmus? Okay. So the oracle, the secret oracle of Delphi that was told to Cadmus, Cadmus, excuse me, was that the oracle advised him to give up the search for Europa and instead found a new city. He was instructed to follow a cow. He would find outside the oracle and build a city on the spot where the cow would stop to rest. Sure enough, Cadmus soon found the cow a few meters from the oracle and followed it. And this, of course, led to um, the establishment of the city of Thebes. Okay. So this explains, of course, why the Sphinx is in Thebes. It also explains why the Sphinx has a connection to Delphi. And it, it also explains her 
primordial connections or pre-Greek civilization connections to the location of Delphi, to the Python that ruled the Oracle pre-Apollo, to pre-Greek civilization. So the Sphinx, I don't know if, if I'm making it clear how significant and important of a symbolic character she is. And, you know, in this podcast, I'm telling the story about her and we're going to talk, we're talking a little bit about her myth and all of these things, but I don't have the time to elaborate on, but I will just now, how much art pre-Greek civilization art, so even pre-Mycenaean, pre-Minoan, and of course, Northern African art, how many instances there are where the Sphinx is part of the fauna, um, the embellishments of pieces, the stories of mystical animals. She was a long reigning powerhouse. And her power, other than her physical body, which was extremely powerful, was knowledge. So she held the secrets and the mysteries, which is why she expresses her knowledge in, in riddles, because as we know, riddles are actually one of the key testers of IQ even today. And so her influence and her long-standing tradition is so significant and so impactful. And yet, you know, we don't really hear too much about the Sphinx. I mean, yes, we hear about the Sphinx at Giza, which is the, the Egyptian Sphinx, because there's just so much tourism around that. But I have walked around in numerous museums and seen, of course, these Sphinx, Greek Sphinx sculptures. And I truly, to be fair and honest, never thought much of them. Um, and in doing the research for this podcast and sort of refreshing my memory of the story of Oedipus and the, the and, and the Sphinx, which is something that I've known and I think most of us kind of hear and when we're reading mythology as a kid, I never really realized the emphasis of riddles and the mystery of riddles and how riddles are the key to gateways, right? Like, no, sorry, I'm jumping to another thing. I'm just thinking of Ghostbusters, for example, the first Ghostbusters or the second, I can't remember, the one where they had the two dogs um, and they were like, are you the gatekeeper or are you the gate key or whatever? And they're passing each other information. <laughs> and, you know, this idea that there's a secret code to get into something and there is a secret, secret code to get into a temple or there's a secret code to get into um, a sacred site or a sacred place or a sacred kingdom, etc. And the gateway, the keeper of that knowledge of that permission is this female um, character. I don't want to say monster because she actually is not a monster until the Greeks turn her into this violent, grotesque, man-eating monster. And as we've seen it with Medusa, you know, the grotesque is really the, the fascination of men, particularly when the grotesque is female. Yeah. So very fascinating, interesting. I, I don't know if I'm getting the importance of her uh, across to you, but, but hopefully um, if you also didn't think about her too much before, you're now like, oh, that is kind of interesting. And I thought that I would show you um, some images of the revival. So this, the story of the Sphinx kind of goes underground. So there's this, you know, there's this moment uh, in Greek mythology or Greek tradition in which we see her. But, uh, sorry, I'm scrolling through my pictures and I just realized that the pictures are not moving as they should be. But either way, the Sphinx kind of goes then, sort of disappears. You know, she disappears into the, um, you know, into the dark ages of um, dark period Europe. And she doesn't really become revived until the late 15th century um, when the mannerist form of art becomes sort of popular. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the first uh, evidence of her is sort of this idea of the French Sphinx. So she has this coiffed hair. So I have an example here. Uh, she has this coiffed hair. 
um, which she holds up. She has the breasts of a young woman. So, and these are um, not covered by her lioness body. Often she wears drops and pearls or ornaments. Uh, her body is naturalistically rendered as a recumbent lioness. So she's just kind of sitting there. Um, and interestingly, her body is mostly lioness. She doesn't have wings, which is fascinating. Um, she's, I mean, there is this kind of harness on top of her body. So if you're not uh, watching the video, that's okay. There's this, to me, so I guess some people can say that these might look like wings, but to me, these are, this is definitely some kind of a, a saddle. That's the word I'm looking for. Some kind of a saddle. Um, it looks like sort of a rug, a fancy rug or a, yeah, placed on her back, but it definitely also to me, looks like a saddle, which is kind of weird. Um, at least that's the first thing I thought when I first saw it. Um, and so she, this, the beginning of sculpting the Sphinx in this way uh, comes out of uh, the revival of the grotesque decorations and the grotesque decoration were unearthed um, in Domus Aria in the Domus Aria of Nero, which was in Rome. And they were found or brought to light in the 15th century. And then she becomes incorporated in the classical vocabulary um, of arabesque designs and art that spread throughout Europe. And she is in engravings everywhere, again, a gatekeeper at the doors. Uh, sphinxes were included in the decorations of the Logia at the Vatican place by the workshop of Raphael that was in the 15th century. And so, the, you know, let's say 1500 years later, after um, the, the sort of the last sculpture of the Greek Sphinx, we have this new evolution of the Sphinx. Again, her face is classically female standard for European. Her body is, interestingly, more of a lioness. I do not see any with wings, but please correct me if you come across any with wings. There, there are probably some statues, of course, that have wings, uh, but it seems that the preferred method is without wings. And also there is no snake tail and there's this kind of weird harness and her breasts are often naked or they're covered by uh, a mantle. So she is revived in, the, in this fascination with the grotesque. And again, then she, she falls under that umbrella of the monstrous, the frightening, the grotesque. And so that's kind of um, interesting, but, but fuels the imagination of these women who have, or female, female creatures who have secret knowledge or mysterious knowledge and are able to give permission to enter. Um, but at the same time are under this umbrella of the frightening, the unnatural, the monstrous, the terrible. Yeah. I also want to touch upon a little bit on the uh, Masonic Sphinx. Yeah. So the Sphinx was adopted as an emblem in Masonic culture. And here you have an image um, of the Sphinx outside of Masonic uh, temples. The interesting aspects about this image, which is one of my favorites, is that the face is androgynous. You know, I want to lean towards it being female, but it's definitely androgynous. And on the one side, um, the Sphinx has, so there's two Sphinxes on the board up now. Uh, both have lion paws. One of them has a snake wrapped around their neck. And the other one has an image of a female, uh, a woman standing with her hands up. Again, interestingly, especially if you know my fascination with the Cretan goddesses or Cretan priestesses that have their hands up. So there is, again, this connection, the symbolism of having your hands up, which is a gesture of receiving, a gesture of worship, or just a gesture of being open to receiving, um, very, a gesture of connecting to the cosmos. There's lots of symbolic explanations for these female figures that are standing and they have their hands up. Um, so there is a lot of imagery on, um, on these two Masonic um, sphinxes. Their, their heads are also covered um, and they wear sort of um, 
a traditional kind of Egyptian uh, cape. And in some cases, they often have like a ball in front of them uh, or a cosmic ball in front of them. In this case, in this image, they do not. Um, so sphinxes were placed at the entrances of temples, as we talked about, to guard their mysteries by warning those who penetrated within that they should conceal a knowledge of them from the uninitiated. So especially in Egypt, sphinxes were standing at the gateways of mysterious or places of mystery and it, as you can imagine the connection uh, like i said that the greek sphinxes are depicted on the tombs of men who died young again this idea of them standing at that gateway between life and death or the gateway to the underworld for example in this case of course for the masonic sphinx and for other places of mystery where the sphinx stays the message here is that you may enter if you're allowed, and of course, if you have the secret codes, but once you're inside, you are not to share what you see or observe or learn, right? So there's this implication, right? There was a, a famous uh, writer, French writer, uh, Champollion, who said that the Sphinx became successively the symbol of each of the gods. So that the Sphinx has no allegiance to one particular god, but is the guardian of the temples of many gods. The placement of the sphinx, sphinxes expressed the idea that all the gods were hidden from the people and that the knowledge of them were, was guarded in the sanctuaries and was revealed to the initiates only. As a Masonic emblem, the sphinx has been adopted as a symbol of mystery and as such often is found as a decoration sculpted in the front of Masonic temples or engraved at the head of Masonic documents. And so it's fascinating how a creature that does not get a lot of playtime is key to is gatekeeper and with all of that, that uh, with everything that implies of the mystery of the gods, of the sacred, of knowledge, of all of these ultra energetic, ultra vibrational, supernatural categories. And here it is fitting that there is a supernatural creature that is powerful, that is knowledgeable, um, that is frightening, that guards the secret, right? Reminds me of the dragon and their hordes. In a way, the hordes for the Sphinx is knowledge. The Sphinx hoards knowledge and she does not share. And if you are not on par with her, she literally kills you. And so this then has brought up the age old question. Are men so afraid of the secret knowledge of women, particularly for the Greek Sphinx? Now, we can put aside the Egyptian Sphinx and the Masonic temple representation, because those are more, you know, men's clubs, let's say. But in, in the case of the Sphinx of Thebes and the Sphinx, the Greek Sphinx that's on the funeral stellas, is the Sphinx so powerful or represents the fear that women are so powerful? that they turn this knowledge or this female power into monstrosities? I think that the answer to that is yes. Yeah. Uh, I think the answer to that is clearly and repeatedly yes, especially for ancient writers like Sophocles and um, Aristophanes and even Plato, who really were trying to create a space for men. Yeah. And we're trying to emphasize the importance and the significance and the elitism of rational thought. So the thought of the mind, again, remember how we talked about men creating with their thoughts because they, not, they do not create or birth with their body. So they birth with their minds. And so I think at this time in, in Greek history and in Greek philosophical thought, the emphasis had to be that thinking was the greatest way uh, to connect and the greatest um, divine labor, if I can say that. 
And so thinking had to be the realm of men. And the Sphinx represented sort of the realm of thinking women pre-Greek thought. And so this story of Oedipus uh, either slaying the Sphinx or having her kill herself really, really symbolically and literally defines uh, the end of female knowledge, yeah, the end of female empowerment. Um, in a recent story in the Smithsonian Magazine, for example, uh, author Nora McGreevy talks about the classicist Debbie Felton. Debbie Felton wrote an essay in 2013 in which she talks about the story of the, the Sphinx and she talks about how these, and Medusa, and how these stories are passed down through the generation. And they spoke to men's fear of women's destructive potential. So that thinking women, women who were smart, and women who had thoughts or knowledge were destructive. <laughs> and so this story of Oedipus either conquering the Sphinx or, of course, Perseus conquering Medusa fulfills the male fantasy of conquering and controlling the female. And the journalist critic Jez Zimmerman stated famously once that women have been monsters and monsters have been women uh, for centuries of stories because these stories encode the expectations, the gender expectations, and the gender boundaries and limitations, and pass them on. Yeah. And so, what happens, of course, is that we get stories in which women are punished for their native intelligence, for their intrinsic intelligence, and for keeping that intelligence to themselves. And so when, if you think about that, then the Sphinx become the, becomes the literal embodiment of knowledge is power. Now, we all know this, this saying that knowledge is power. The Sphinx is really the embodiment of that. More so, I think, than Medusa. You know, Medusa is an embodiment of a different kind of power, the power of anger, the power of seclusion, the power of independence. I think the Sphinx really represents and embodies the power of knowledge, Literally, because if you don't guess her riddle, she will kill you with her powerful body. But also that mysteries, for example, if we think of her at Delphi, that mysteries and knowledge gives you political power. And so when she was blocking Laius's sons from becoming the kings of thieves, it's because she had the secret knowledge that her father gave her of the oracle uh, or the prophecy. And she was challenging the sons to say, do you have this knowledge? And if you don't have this knowledge, then you cannot have this political power. And so literally the Sphinx is the embodiment of knowledge is power, which I find fascinating because that explains then her place in modern culture, like the Masonic temples and like other areas where we see the Sphinx at the gateways, even the Vatican, for example, at the gateways uh, because then there is knowledge to be gained. Whatever that knowledge is, there's knowledge to be gained once you pass through the gates of the Sphinx or once the Sphinx allows you to pass through. So I wanted to close by reading this um, poem by a contemporary poet, uh, an American writer named Muriel Rukiser, sorry if I'm saying that wrong, uh, who lived from 1913 to 1980. And she reimagined uh, the significance of female creatures and particularly the Sphinx. And her poem is called Breaking Open. So I wanted to read it to you. Um, there's, it's a longer work, but I wanted to read you this part about the Sphinx. Long after Oedipus, old and blinded, so long after he had realized that he had married his mother and learned, you know, that the children were incest and the mother and the mother had killed herself, etc. So long after Oedipus, old and blinded, walked the roads. He smelled a familiar smell. It was the Sphinx. Oedipus said, I want to ask one question. Why didn't I recognize my mother? You gave the wrong answer, said the Sphinx. But that was what made everything possible, said Oedipus. No, she said. When I asked, what walks on four legs in the morning, two at noon, and three in the evening, you answered, man. You didn't say anything about woman. When you say man, said Oedipus, you include women too. 
Everyone knows that. And the Sphinx says, that's what you think. Yeah. <laughs> and so I thought that was really brilliant. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's a great, great way to sort of come around uh, to the end or to the closing of our story. Um, because I think it's important that we ask the question of why was the Sphinx deposed? Now, like I said before, um, you know, researchers and archaeologists and ancient historians believe that this was the transition, you know, from the old traditional religious practices that represent that were represented by the Sphinx to the ones of the Olympian deities. But it was not necessary to kill the Sphinx in order to impose these new deities. Yeah. Uh, it is really hard to think about the continuous death of female deities or the marrying off of the larger female deities, such as Artemis, Aphrodite, Hera, um, of ancient Greece, right? Uh, of pre-ancient Greece, sorry, to establish the Olympian pantheon. So I don't think it has anything to do with a change of the guard in the sense of, I don't think it's necessary to kill the Sphinx to change the guard. And I don't think it's necessary to kill Medusa to change the guard because the Greeks were quite successful, like I said, in marrying off the other goddesses, Artemis, Aphrodite, etc. I will propose that the killing of the Sphinx the destruction of Medusa, and sorry, sorry, I'm sidetracking now. And there are stories actually, which I hadn't gotten to, where the Sphinx is also worn on um, the shields of other soldiers as a as a intimidation tactic. So this is a repeated um, theme of killing. And actually, if you think about even the lion um, that Hercules wears on his body. Uh, when he kills an Nemean lion, again, this idea that you wear the skins of the creatures you conquer. So I think that there is something more here in the killing, the destruction of these so-called monsters or monstrous female creatures, that it's more than just a changing of the guard because Oedipus could have defeated the Sphinx and walked on. But he either slays her or she kills herself. So there's an end here. There's a, a violent end here. And I think that that is more symbolically a patriarchal structure. It's, it's more of a threat. Um, while certain goddesses were married off, sort of like these women were good enough to make it under the oppression of <laughs> patriarchy. But other women, particularly those problematic ones, I say that in quotation marks, must be destroyed. You know, and of course, later we have, later in Europe, we have the witch trials and the witch burnings, so that there are some women that cannot be controlled or that have too much knowledge and they cannot just be married off or given away to a, a brother or a father or whoever. They cannot be fit or thrown into or pegged into the patriarchal structure. And therefore, they must be destroyed. And in their destruction, they set an example for other women who dare to think that they could be uh, knowledgeable or independent or whatever you want to say. And so I think that um, there is something there, you know, to the fact that these creatures are killed. And then there's something there to the later fascination under the patriarchal, and in the case of Europe, Christian umbrella of the grotesque. And as we saw with Medusa, we see with the Sphinx, this fetishization of the monstrous female. But the monstrous female has power and knowledge, and there is a fetishization of the conquering, as well as the observing and the being somewhat frightened by, you know, it does, you know, these, these creatures do a lot, you know, they're, they're multi-layered, multi-dimensional lessons, because in many ways, women view these creatures and go, oh, ew, ah, unnatural. 
And they are rewarded for saying that by other men who go, yes, that is correct. You are a good woman. This is a bad woman. Um, in another way, the men themselves are taught that, you know, women who stand outside of what has de been deemed natural should not be approached because they might kill you. Um, so this imagery does something that is multidimensional. And as, you know, Zimmerman said, um, and of course, as um, Debbie Felton says, the stories are passed down as stories or as mythologies or whatever you want to call it, but they are teaching a lesson, an unconscious and a conscious lesson in the way that we think about ourselves and in the way that we think about um, gender expectations and gender traditions. Yeah? So the Sphinx is fundamental. She is fascinating. And I hope that you've been as fascinated by her as I have. And I hope that you've enjoyed uh, this podcast as much as I have. Um, next week, we are going to be looking at um, Empusa and Lamia. And I might squeeze in there the Strigas. The Strigas are a Romanian um, creature. And uh, as a Romanian, I want to talk a little bit about that. And they all have sort of similar characteristics. So uh, we're going to talk about those guys. So hopefully, um, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please hit uh, subscribe and please share it with others. Um, I would love to also hear your thoughts in the comments. If you've come across anything that's interesting about the Sphinx or any other sort of Sphinx-like creatures, if you found this really interesting, um, one of the things that I want to do, and even at the center, is I really want to create a place of conversation and discussion. Um, so I'm even thinking of starting a book club, actually, uh, through the center. So if you're interested, actually, I'm going to pop the uh, sign up for the book club link in the comments below, because um, I want to do a book club where we are reading a, a nonfiction book, um, usually about pre-Greek civilizations, <laughs> um, and it will be sort of female-centered, of course, but pre-Greek civilizations, and we will do like one book at a time, and we'll do different chapters. And we'll meet maybe twice a month to discuss different things. And then we'll do one book. And let's say we do a book in a month or two. And then we'll take a break. And then we'll do another book. Again, a month or two where we have these collaborative discussions on uh, online on Zoom, uh, which I will host. And then, um, so I, because I think one of the things that I like, I like to talk to you guys in the podcast, but I also like to hear your feedback and I like to have conversations and see other people having conversations because that's how sort of we share ideas and ideologies and, and our own personal experience, um, with mythology and living mythology and how mythology, and especially how these stories that I'm sharing with you resonate with you in your everyday life or your understanding of, is this why I feel this way about myself, about other women, about society, about relationships? You know, there's a lot to, you know, Jung and Freud are not wrong when they say that mythology is part of the unconscious, the collective unconscious, as Jung says, or part of your upbringing in your community and your parenting, as Freud says, they're not wrong in that. And that mythology is psychological. And I hope that by listening to the podcast and by joining in and maybe joining our book club uh, through the center, that you can really take the opportunity. And it's not just for women. I just want to say that's for everyone who wants to be part of it. Um, that you can, I don't know, for me, when I read and do the research and come across these stories, I find a better understanding of myself. I find a better understanding of why I think the way I do. I find a better understanding of how I've been indoctrinated to believe certain things and what was the purpose of that. And I would really like to share that with the rest of you and hear your thoughts and turn mythology into a tool in which we can break free from the indoctrination or from the conditioning or from, you know, the, the pain or suffering that perhaps we've been surviving under um, 
knowledge is power. <laughs> I will leave it at that. Knowledge is power. And the Sphinx knew that. Yeah. And perhaps she's the key to it. So if you're enjoying this, please follow me, please share. And I will see you next week when we uh, look at the Enpusa, the Lamia, and hopefully the Stiga as well. All right. Have a great, fantastic day. And uh, I will see you all next week.